0: continuing our series about the character of God. And I'm really glad that Pastor Ujin last week started off the series about describing one of God's characters, one of God's attributes, which is his attribute of being a spirit. So what does it mean for God to be spirit? The God that we worship is a God who is spirit. What is the definition of spirit? Definition of spirit is Number one God is immaterial which means he doesn't have he's not material He doesn't have what we have we are material beings right we have bodies we have clothes we oc- our, our matter occupy time and space God is not like that when God when we say God is spirit he mean we mean God is immaterial What we also mean when we say God is spirit he mean- we also mean that God is as a personhood god which means god is self-aware of who he is god is a person who is self-aware of who he is god has an intellect god has a will god feels god is relational that's what it means for god to be spirit for him to have a, for him to be a full person. Not a human being. Human beings are material beings. God is a spiritual person, an immaterial person. Because we are made in the image of God, there are certain attributes that we share with God. Just like God is self-aware, has an intellect, has emotions, right, and, and is relational, Us being part made in the image of God, and because we have souls, we are also self-aware. Like, I am not Sean Kim, right? There's no distinguish in my mind that I, I, like, I don't think I'm Sean Kim. I'm self-aware. And Sean Kim certainly doesn't think he's PJ. We are all self-aware entities. All of us have intellects, some more than others. All of us have emotions. All of us feel, all of us have a a, a desire, a plan. All of us are relational. We can't live without other human beings. All of it. We we are this way because we're made in the image of God. Because God is spirit, God is an immaterial person, there is something about us that is also immaterial and person as well. Am I, am I, you're with me, right? And so in our small group, in the Alexandria small group last, last Friday, we had a really good time, by the way. I'm not selling my small group, but you know it's pretty good, right? And we were talking about, we were sharing, what are the, some of the attributes that we have that reflect the character of God? Some of, some of my, one of my brothers says, I am very precise. I want to be very precise in all that I do. And my desire to be precise in all that I do is an attribute of God because God is precise. If you read Job, you'll see how precise he is. The universe is maintained a certain way because the universe is maintained in in, in precision because God designed the universe precisely. And that brother, he has that quality of being precise because he's made in the image of God. And some of them, like another person shared that that person is very empathetic she understands what other people are going through. She has that ability because she's also made in the image of God who empathizes with us. Everything about you, you're more than a body, right? There is a soul about you, and the good parts of your soul are good because you're made in the image of God. These characters that we share with God are called the communicable attributes of God. It is, we know who God is through these attributes that we have. These are the communicable attributes of God. These, this is a very big word. What sin is, by, by the way, and we had, during our discussion on Friday, we, had, we found a new definition of sin. The great small group, by the way. I'm selling it like crazy. A great smoker we came up with a new definition not, not, not a new definition because that would be like we'll be a cult if we do that but another way to look at sin is God's divine attributes gone haywire in our in our lives for example the brother who is who is precise his hay- his his at- attribute of God gone haywire is he uses that precision that he has to judge and nag other people. If other people don't meet his precision, he goes crazy. And he starts judging other people because they are sloppy. You see, his goodness, his godliness, is the precision. But he uses that godly attribute to judge and destroy another human being. I think I was sharing my, I think, God, one of many, many. You know, not many, I don't have that many qualities. I think one of the things that God has given me is my ability to empathize with people. But that desire gone crazy is I use that attribute of me knowing other people, what other people are going through, and thinking that that, that person is exactly who I think that person is. And I judge people based upon my perception of who they are. That's God's divine attributes gone haywire in my life. All of us have godly attributes because we're made in the image of God. Sin is making those divine attributes go crazy and haywire, and which is causing destruction in our lives and in the people around us. Okay? So that's my brief summary of my take of Pastor Eugene's sermon last week. We share attributes of God. Those are the communicable attributes of God. But there is also an incommunicable attributes of God, which means there are qualities that we do not share with God, qualities that belong to God and God alone. There are those that we have that inflects God, but there are certain things that we do not have that only God has. And one of that quality that only God has is sovereignty. God is the only only person who is sovereign. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? We will study that in more detail as we progress through the sermon. But basically, God's sovereignty is God's omniscient. He knows all things. God's omnipresence. He is everywhere. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. God's sovereignty means he rules existence through his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. That's God's sovereignty. There is nothing in reality that has that, that, that happens without God's will for making it happen. That's God's sovereignty. Everything that is happening right now is because God planned it and God willed it. He is sovereign. Everything happens in accordance to his will. Whew, that's a big tomato that I just said. Let's, let's, let's study that through Isaiah chapter 46. The book of Isaiah is about God prophesying against Israel. But God's saying, I'm going to judge you Israel because even though I made you and I established you and I protected you, you betrayed me Israel. You followed after other gods, Israel. So Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah is God's prophecy against the nation of Israel. God is saying, because you were unfaithful to me, I'm going to let Babylon, the great empire of Babylon come into your midst and hell you ca- and, 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 and they're going to engulf you. You're gonna be, be Babylon's captive. That's Isaiah, that's what the book of Isaiah is about. 46. Chapter 46 is God's promising Israel that despite their despite their Babylonian captivity, one day He's going to rescue them out of that captivity. That's what what 46 is about. Chapter chapter 46 that we just read clearly shows the omnipotence, the omnipresence, and the omniscience of God. Let's go to to verse 1. It says, verse 1, what does it say? Baal bows down Nebo stoops. Baal and Nebo are the two most popular, popular idols that the Canaanites, Israel's neighbors, worshipped. They worshipped, they had their own deity, and the most common popular deities that Israel's neighbor worshipped, and Israel that also Israel wanted to worship because they want to be like their neighbors, is Baal and, and um, Nebu. Nebu sounds like a planet in Star Wars, doesn't it, John? Right where, you know, Padme and Anakin fell in love, right? Little little, little sidebar. Let's talk about Baal. Baal is the most, like, like, if there's Yahweh, Israel always wanted to worship Baal. Who is Baal? Baal is a god of fertility, right? This is really important for farming community, right? So if you worship Baal, he's going to make your crops Fertile, right? More crops. He's going to make your cattle fertile. More cows. He's going to make your wife fertile. More more children. So for a farming community, Baal is really important. If you worship Baal, he's going to make, make you, your life fertile. And then that was attractive. If you bow down to Baal, if you make an idol of Baal, I think Baal is like a guy with a cow head and a horn. I think that's what it looks like. If you make an image of Baal with gold and bow down to that guy, man, fertility all around. But Isaiah is saying, "Look, you y'all, like Israel and Canaanites, y'all worship Baal and Nebu." But what are Baal and Nebu actually, what can they do for you? Nothing. They cannot save the burden. He, they, Baal, even though you may worship him until kingdom come, will not save you. In fact, Baal, when God raises the kingdom of Persia to conquer Babylon, these golden statues of Baal, the Persian Empire, will carry. And take it to their kingdom. That's what verse 1 and 2 means. Like, you know, like it's on their beast. Meaning, one day when Persia comes and conquers Babylon, Persia's going to take all the golden bell statues, put it on their donkeys, and carry it to their kingdom. So these idols that are so important to you cannot help you. Neither can it help themselves. Because they're going to be carried off of captivity worthless God says but me God says listen verse 13 verse 3 listen to me O house of Jacob all the remnant of house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb what does he mean he says Israel these Baals that you worship are worthless but me I'm the one who created you even before you were born. I made you. I designed you. Not only that, I carried you from the womb. I gave birth to you. And after you were born, I carried you. The word carry, like when I was like like writing this yesterday, yesterday, or Friday night, I was writing this Friday night, I thought of Olivia and Rob right? Olivia and Rob. And I, and I got their permission to use this example. So whenever I think of Olivia and Rob, I think of them carrying Benedict, right? They, ha- they have that, you know, that mom like mom, mom and dad baby carrying contraption where you know, like baby goes, baby goes and, 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 and strap on and baby goes like, like right? And the mom carry it. Like Rob and Olivia are carrying Benedict with that contraption. Benedict can't walk. Benedict can't go places by himself. Therefore, he's being carried. God is saying, Israel, I gave birth to you. I carried you. Just like Robin Olivier carrying Benedict. Even when you're old, I will support you. Right? Image of a very old man who can't walk on his own, who needs the help of a strapping young man. That's the image. You are helpless again. You are helpless without me, Israel. And I go, Yeah. Idols can't do nothing for you. I do everything for you. That's that's the contrast. Children of God, God carries us. Did you know that? If you are a Christian, You are Christian because from the beginning of the, even before the moments of time, he willed it for you to be a Christian. He gave birth to you, and in your short life in this world, he will carry you. That is absolutely true. He carries you. I turned 50 last week. I turned 50, y'all. You know what I mean? And when when you're old man, you tend to look back upon your life. You know what I realized in my life? I've accomplished nothing on my own. There is nothing that I accomplished on my own. Whether it is where I was born, to the parents that I was born to, whether I came to America because I was my son's fault, I was my son's, my father's son, right? The job that I have, the church that I have, the blessings in the church, everything that I have in my life, there is nothing that I've accomplished on my own. That's true. Everything was given to me. Everything was provided for me. God carried me. And he's still carrying me. We have this understanding. We have this idea, especially Christians, thinking, oh, man, my faith journey is is about how faithful I am to God. My faith journey is about how much I am holding on to God, my effort holding on to God. That's not true. Christianity primarily is not about how much you are holding on to God, but how much he's carrying you. Why am I going so passionate so early? I don't know. But that's true. God carries you. Your life, Christian, is about God carrying you to places. God supporting you. That is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I love it when I suffer. I love it when I got beaten. I love it when I'm stranded. I love it when I'm confused. I love it when things do not go well for me. Why? Because in my weakness, I see the power of God. Paul knows that he needs to be carried. Christians, you need to know that you, are, you need to be carried. The sovereign God carries you. Worthless idols do nothing for you. That, that's the point. Let's go. Uh, What verse am I? Oh. uh, Okay, verse 5. Idols not only can do nothing for you, idols are man-made. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out, this is the NIV version, some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on scales, They hire a goldsmith to make it a god, and they bow down and worship it. So in verse 6, Isaiah is describing how idols are made. How are idols made? Idols are made because some people take gold, they measure gold, they melt it, and they make an idol. Some other idols are made because you take silver, you melt it, take it to the goldsmith, you measure the silver, you take the silver to the goldsmith, and the goldsmith makes an idol for you. These idols that you worship, these idols that you think will save you, are man-made, are made in China. You know what I mean? They're made in Malaysia. They're made in Harvard. They're made in Wall Street. These idols that you worship, that, 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 that you want to live in accordance to their directives, are man-made. How can man-made things help you? You know? Is that really foolish? Look, back then, the idols were Baal, right? Gold statues, right? Human-made gold statues. Right now, our idols, no one worships a golden statue, unless you're like in other parts of Asia, right, where they still do idol worship. But Western culture, Western society, we don't worship idols, like men, like literal idols. Our our, our idols these days are ideologies. What governs, dictate our thinking and values are ideologies manufactured by men. The values that you have, I don't know about materialism, I don't know about... About what life is, all that stuff. They're manufactured in academia. People in academic area, they write strange theses, which gets transferred down to Marvel and Disney and Netflix, right? And they make an entertainment, and these ideas trickle down to corporations and media, news. And these things govern the way we think. We need to understand a lot of the things that we value, a lot of the definition of what we think life ought to be. It's man-made man. You understand? Look, example I can give you is, recent example I can give you is this, these, there's, there's like two, professors, two academics named James Lindsay and Peter Boghossian, right? they are two, like one's a mathematician, one's a physicist, right? And they get so tired of this crazy social liberal ideologies in academia. They wanted to prove how foolish it is, right, of how this modern social academia is out of control, right? So they wanted to prove how foolish these man-made ideologies are. So you know what they did? They wrote 20 academic papers in nine months. The way you become renowned in academia is by writing academic papers. You write academic papers. It takes you a year to write two, one or two. You research, and you, and you send that your work to academic journals. They review it, and if they like it, they accept it, and they, you know, they have other people review the work, and they publish it. It's incredibly difficult to get those academic works published. These guys wrote 20 academic journal articles in nine months. And they made up their they made up their, their, their studies. They made it up. They made up their data. Like one of the one of the one of their submissions was they took Hitler's Mein Kampf, right? And they switched out the word Jew for white man. And they didn't change anything about that. They only changed the word Jew and white men, and they submit it to the academic journal. It almost got published. And the only reason why it got published was they they said, oh, you're you're writing it from a white person's perspective. We don't want that. They they had no qualms about how crazy that idea was. They just wanted to accept it. They got four articles published and seven in the work. Their point was, modern academia, modern intellectual thought that is governed modern culture, by the way, is foolishness. These thought that is governing your inner governing culture, education your kids will get that kind of education, right? Media, everything. It's mad-made foolishness. And churches and schools and companies are drinking it up. Man-made foolishness. God is saying, why are you listening to man-made foolishness? You need to listen to the living God. I am sovereign, he says. Verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old; for I am God, and there is no other. Verse: I am God, and there is no one like me. Verse ten, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that not yet done. Verse ten is verse ten. God is talking about His omniscience. He knows all things. He knows all things, and He declares things even before they happen. Verse 10, the first part of verse 10, uh, declaring the end from the beginning, it means this. What does it mean, John Piper? John Piper says this, God knows and declares how things turn out long before they ever happen. God knew Jamie was going to marry her even before the first Adam was created. Better be good to her, yo. Right? Well, who else can make call out today without being offended? I think everyone else kind of senses it besides you. Right? He knew you to be you, even before the beginning of time. Ooh, that's what God is saying. I know all things. I declare all things to happen. Not only did God knew Jamie was going to marry Hill, he declared that that will be, so it happened. By the way, how do you know you marry the right person? Because you're married to that person. That's how you know. I don't know, did I make a mistake? Maybe, but it's still, God still willed it. Right? God knows. Even before it happened, it's going to happen. Verse continue. Verse ten. I my, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Verse verse. The latter part of verse ten is, is it's describing God's omnipotence. Omnipotent means God's power. God's power. And his power is demonstrated by the fact that he does everything that he wills. God knows all things. He plans all things. And he's going to use his power to make what he he planned and what he will to happen. Things cannot happen until God lets it happen. You understand? God knows all things. God controls all things so that all things will unfold in accordance to his will. Woo. That's a big tomato right there. God is also omnipresent. He is everywhere. How do you know verse, verse 11 talks about God's omnipresent? Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel, far from, from a far country. Verse 11, he is talking about King Cyrus of Persia. He said, God is saying in verse 11, Israel, you're going to be captive to the most powerful nation of the earth, which is Babylon. Babylon is the most powerful nation of the earth. It's like China and U.S. combined. Woo, that's a big tomato, right? Babylon is the world power. No one thought that Persia was going, be, was going to be able to conquer babylon babylon had a great it was a great fortified city like helms deep sean stark you know what i mean like the death star it was a great fortified city it has the death star and star destroyers surrounding it it was impenetrable but god says oh yeah you think you're impenetrable verse 11 I'm going to raise a call, a bird of prey from the east. The man of counsel, man of counsel from afar. I'm going to raise up little Cyrus from Persia. Even though you may think Babylon that you're impenetrable, I'm working in my, I'm working in the background here, yo. And I'm going to raise Persia, and Persia is going to destroy you, Babylon. People in Babylon didn't know that Persia is coming. God knew why. God knows all things. God is present in all things, working things out according so that his will be accomplished. This is God's sovereignty. He knows all things. He's in all things. So that all things that he will, will happen. That's God's, um, God's sovereignty. I'll give you a brief summary of God's sovereignty. I'll quote the Westminster Confession of Faith. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. This is old English. I will translate into modern English. This means, this means God's sovereignty means this. He knows all things. He plans all things by the counsel of his wisdom. He determines all things to happen. He exercises power to accomplish his plan. He is ever present in all things, making his will happen. Whew. Big tomato. Trying to make big tomato a thing. Everything happening to you now because of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty determines nature, determines physics, determines how molecules multiply. It determines how atoms split, how protons and electrons spin. It determines how fast the universe is expanding. God's sovereignty determines the cell replication in your body, the neurons firing in your brain. God's chemical dis- God's sovereignty determines how much that, gra- that grass on the outside will grow. He controls nature. He controls human history. He controls who will be elected president, who will be elected congressman, who will be elected. The Bible is clear. God determines the rising of kings and the falling of kings, and the rising of nations and the falling of nations. God determines the history of man. God also determines your personal history. God knows how long you will live. God knows what you will do, who you marry. God knows which job you're going to get. God God knows which job you're not going to get. God knows which girl that's going to reject you. And God knows, by his miracle, a girl that's going to accept you. Everything happens. In accordance to his will, he's ever-present, making his will happen. His power ensures that everything happens. We're living in God's world. We're living in his plan. We're living in his time. Oh, thats I just thought of that right now. Once again, we are living in God's world. You are living in God's plan. You are living in God's time. You are living under God's will, whether you know it or not. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. I have so many other verses to talk about, right? But for the interest of time, because I promised Pastor Eugene I'm going to finish this, so it's because he wants to preach next week, I will skip over a lot of the verses that I have, and I will let's talk about the implications. God is everywhere, right? God is everywhere. He knows all things. He's all powerful. Uh, Let's talk about a few verses about God's power. Verse 19, Matthew 19, verse 25. Nothing is impossible for God. That's what Jesus says. Ephesians 1, verse 11. The plan of God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's what Paul says. Everything happens because God planned it and God willed it. What is, the evidence? what is the evidence of God's power? Didn't Jesus quiet the storms? Jesus was, Jesus was on a boat with his disciples. He was asleep. There was a storm. The disciples thought he was gonna, they were going to die. They freaked out. And Jesus woke up and said, shush. And the, and the storms calmed down. That's power, isn't it? Someone asked Rosalind Picard, the great, computer science f- f- professor at MIT, who's the, who's the leading computer scientist. Yay, woman power. Who's a leading computer scientist in America. She's a Christian. And, so, and, and someone asked her, doesn't it, you as a, like a scientist, doesn't it bother all these miraculous stories about, on the Bible? Doesn't it make you think your religion is we- weird? And she says, no. She says, I believe God codes the universe. And if God chooses to code the universe in a certain way where Jesus could suspend the storms, that's his will. God bless your Rose Olympic card. That's true. How do you explain miracles in the Bible? God planned it, God's power, God's omnipotence. He's all powerful. He's omniscient. He is He is all knowing. He is all knowing. Matthew 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. God's admission, he knows all things. He knows when two sparrows will fall dead on the ground. Two random sparrows. God knows exactly, God knows where they fly and God knows when they're going to fall and God knows how much they're going to be sold for. Two random sparrows. The chicken that you, ate, that you will eat for lunch today, God knew that chicken. Crazy, isn't it? God knows how much hair you have on your head. Some more than others, but God knows exactly how much hair you have on your head. Jesus is saying, God knows all things. He is everywhere. Not, he's all powerful, not, he's, not, not only He's all-powerful, not, all, not, not, not only He's all-knowing, He is everywhere. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the deep, you are there. So if, Whether I go to heaven or whether I die in hell, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Psalm 139, there is nowhere that you can go that, can, that, can, that can escape from God. Not even hell. Nowhere. Because God is everywhere. Everywhere, ever-present, doing what he wants to do. Woo, big tomato. All-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere. We're living in God's time. We're living under his will. What else did I say? We're living under his purpose. That's the sovereignty. Now the question you may ask yourself is this. If God is sovereign, if he's all-powerful, all-knowing, if he's everywhere, how do you explain the pain? suffering of the world. Whew. Question. July's been tough for me personally. Because something happened in my family. Not my immediate my parents. That is very difficult to grasp and understand. I was sharing with my small group on Friday what that is. If you want to know what I'm suffering, join my small group. I'm using my suffering to sell small group. But there's something very difficult and hopeless that I'm going through. And I'm I'm not I'll be honest with you because you know we're honest with each other. As I was going through that, while thinking about the sovereignty of God, do you think it lessened my pain? Not only is my parents going through things that are very, very painful. one of my close childhood friend her parent well, her parents which whom I considered like my aunt and uncle, her mother is diagnosed with Alzheimer's and that that lady really loved me, and you know when you when she looks at me, it looks like Know how like a like a BTS fan looks at a BTS guy. I mean, not but that kind of like she really loved me. She was very fond of me. That lady diagnosed with Alzheimer's in July. Not just me. But I know some of you. Have lost a parent. Have lost a spouse due to COVID. One of our church members' mother is, is recovering because she fell off of a horse. We have parents who are in stage four cancer right now. I know I know most of you, some of you. scars and pain, trauma from from your past, then maybe you'll never get over. Let's be real here. Some of us are carrying burdens that we will never get over in this world. I have a scar that will never heal in this world, I don't think. So did Paul. Paul has a thorn in his flesh. He asked God to take it away, but God didn't take it away. There are some scars that we will need to carry the burden all the days of our lives here. How do you reconcile that with God's sovereignty? I was listening to a confession of a former Christian. There are a lot of those confessions out there, by the way, on YouTube. It's a season of Christians just leaving the faith, evidently. And one dude left the faith. Why? Why did you leave the faith, that dude? He said, well, I needed a job, and some, someone prophesied that I was going to get a job. When I didn't get that job, I questioned prophecy, and I questioned whether God really existed. He didn't get the job that he wanted because someone prophesied that he was going to get it. But he didn't get it, so he's mad at God, and I'm going to leave. With things that we care for, when we suffer, don't happen, it's taken away from us. When we are miserable, can you still say God is sovereign? How do you explain this? The Bible explains it this way. There, is, there are some mysteries that only God knows. Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. One of the glories of God is He conceals a matter. He doesn't tell anyone what His will is. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Right before Jesus was is ascended to heaven, his disciples asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Right before Jesus goes up, Jesus ascends, his disciples asked him, Lord, Lord, oh, Lord, are you going to now, you know, establish Israel away from the Roman Empire? Jesus says to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. His disciples asked, Lord, now is the time when Israel is going to restore? It? Jesus says, none of your beeswax." When God will do this, there are things that God will hide from you, not reveal himself to you. And one of those things is, why do you must suffer? What matters is God's sovereignty. When we understand God's, even though we may not know exactly why we suffer, when our hearts are persuaded by God's sovereignty, it still gives us comfort. It really does. And the best example is Job. Let's, let's talk about Job for a second. Job is the oldest book of the Bible. It is the first written book of the Bible, Job. Remember that, this is really important, right? Job, oldest book of the Bible. What is the oldest book of the Bible? Don't say Genesis. What is the oldest book of the Bible? Job. And what is Job about? Job is about this guy, a righteous guy named Job, whom God called righteous. If God calls you righteous, you're doing right, man. One day Satan says, Lord, you can't tempt Job. Lord, Job's gonna, if you take away Job's thing, Job's gonna curse you. And God says, Okay, do what you will. And what does Satan do? Satan takes away Job's kids. All his children die in one instant. All his property lost. All the wealth lost. All the respect he had in community gone. His health gone. He is filled with boils. You know what boils are? These like red pussy things all over his body. It itches so bad that Job takes a piece of pottery and scratches it, scratches the boil. The image of Job is, in my mind, he's scratching his boil in the ruin of his property. His kids are gone, property is gone, name is gone, health is gone, wife said curse God and die and she leaves him, wife is gone. And this is the God, the God, guy, God said, you're righteous. Oldest book of the Bible, by the way, once again, God takes a righteously righteous guy and he, God, allows these calamities to happen. Under his sovereignty, Job says, why is this happening? Why? Why, God? I don't understand why. God comes to Job and he talks to Job at the end. But God doesn't explain to Job why. He never did. At the last chapter of Job, God meets Job in a whirlwind. And through various questions, God reveals to Job how great and powerful he is. God reveals his sovereignty to Job. And that, as, as God is showing how great he is, after realizing how great God is at the end of Job. This is Job's confession. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. This is a guy who lost everything under God's sovereignty, and yet when God revealed the sovereignty to Job, Job says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job is praising God. Weird, right? Job didn't need to know why he had to suffer. When Job understood God's sovereignty, Job's heart was filled with praise. How do you, how do your heart transform? Job, first book of the Bible clearly shows life is going to be hard for you. Even under God's sovereignty, because we're living in a fallen world, look, life is going to be hard. June June is going to med school right now. Praise God, June. But June, I know. I have a gift of prophecy. Your life is going to be hard, yo. Unless you're a dermatologist, then good for you. Then we got to have a talk. Don't go to dermatology, right? It's going to be hard for him. God blessed him in med school, but it's going to be hard for him. Life is going to be hard for young June. Same as all of you. How do you reconcile? How are you comforted in the midst of those turmoils? Know that God is sovereign. It may not make sense to you, but when you know God is sovereign, it will give you joy. How do I know? This is what I think life is. Man, maybe I have to like, continue next week. No, I won't. I'll end with this. I consider my life like a small piece of puzzle. My life is a small, very small piece of puzzle in a larger, great, Puzzle of God. God has a huge picture he has in mind. And my life right now. Is just a small piece of puzzle. Everything that I'm going through. Everything that I have. Is a small piece of puzzle. Even the suffering that I go through. Is a small piece of a puzzle. I know. One day. I will see how my life fit into the greater narrative of God's picture. I trust in his goodness. I trust in his goodness. I trust that it's going to be a masterpiece. God's picture is going to be a masterpiece. And my life contributed to that masterpiece. Even the suffering that all of us go through is a small piece of God's greater masterpiece. And I think that's what Job realized more important than the suffering that he went through, is this greater masterpiece that God is designing in the the universe. I think we got to see our lives that way. I don't know how my life fits into God's great picture. I do not know how it does. I don't. None of you will either. But according to Job, it will all fit and we'll praise God when we see it complete completed. What is the greatest narrative? We don't know exactly what it would look like, but we know what it, we know what it is. What is, the God, what is God's great picture described in the Bible? Salvation of his people. Building of his kingdom. The great picture. We don't know what this picture is going to look like, but it's a picture of the kingdom of God. And in that picture of the kingdom of God, The integral part of the, the master part of the puzzle, of the picture is God's saving work in Jesus Christ. God is going to use everything in your life our church, His Bible, your suffering, your pain to bring about salvation in you. His great purpose is for you to be saved and for you to grow in Christ. That's His big picture. If it takes for you to lose a job, he's going to let that happen. If it takes you to lose health, that will happen. John Piper, talk- he's talking about this guy he met in, I think, Orlando or something. The guy has three kids and a wife, three young kids and a wife, and he got stage four cancer, and he found Christ in the cancer war, and he praised God for it. Not John Piper, that guy praised God for it. It took cancer for that guy to find Christ. The great masterpiece is our salvation and our conforming into the image of Christ. God is everywhere. He's all powerful. He's even in the random things of life, controlling it so that that will happen. I'm losing you. I know. I've gone way over than I thought that I would. God is sovereign. He is all knowing. He is everywhere. He does everything in accordance to his will. But the chief purpose of, of his will is your and mine conformity to Jesus Christ. And he will move all the pieces of your life to make that happen if you are his. So do not be afraid. Use everything, consider everything God's ingredients. To save you. To make you more like Christ. Let's pray.